Hello and welcome to episode 11 of PathPod. This is our next episode of PathPod News Edition. This week our host, Dr. Meredith Pittman, spoke with Dr. Emily Schindler of Mercy Hospital in St. Louis, Missouri. We'll hear their conversation about how COVID-19 has impacted many aspects of the clinical laboratory. Our host, Dr. Pittman, is on Twitter at M-E-R-E-P-I-T-T. Now here's your host, Dr. Meredith Pittman. Hello and welcome to PathPod News Edition. I'm your host, Dr. Meredith Pittman. This week, the World Health Organization held its annual oversight convention by teleconference for the first time ever. Under normal circumstances, the 194 member countries would meet in Geneva to formulate the health policies for the coming year and to approve a budget. This year, however, the meeting is a virtual gathering focused on one major health topic, the novel coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, causing the illness known as COVID-19. With close to 5 million people infected worldwide, many are hoping that the WHO countries will reach an agreement on the development and distribution of a vaccine. But with the United States and China, who are the two largest financial contributors to the WHO, locked in a political battle over the source of and response to the pandemic, it may be up to smaller nations to support a so-called people's vaccine. According to the United Nations, a people's vaccine for COVID-19 would be one which is developed through free exchange of scientific ideas across borders and then mass produced, distributed fairly, and made available to peoples of all countries free of charge. Meanwhile, Moderna, a pharmaceutical and biotechnology company based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, announced positive results from its phase one trial for an mRNA-based vaccine against COVID-19. The Moderna press release states that the first eight participants showed the presence of serum-neutralizing antibodies at levels similar to patients who had been infected with COVID-19, and that the vaccine was well-tolerated by all. Given these positive early results, the company is planning to ramp up production for testing of thousands of participants by the summer. Also in works for the summer is a study by the United States Centers for Disease Control, who has announced that it will test over 300,000 blood donors in 25 major metropolitan areas in order to track the spread of the virus and see how antibodies may evolve over time. Currently, antibody testing is being performed using either commercial assays from various manufacturers who have received emergency use authorization from the FDA, or by laboratory-developed diagnostic tests that are validated by individual CLIA-certified labs. As you can imagine, the sheer scope of the pandemic and the variety of testing issues, from the assay type to test implementation, have meant that laboratory medicine physicians have literally been working night and day to ensure the health of their local populations. We are lucky to have with us today Dr. Emily Schindler, the Medical Director of Clinical Laboratories and Blood Donor Services at Mercy Hospital in St. Louis, Missouri. Dr. Schindler has graciously given up her time to discuss all things COVID and clinical pathology related today on this news edition. Hi, Dr. Schindler. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Of course. Happy to be here. Uh, So before we jump into talking about testing um, for COVID-19, I wanted to set the stage a bit for our listeners. What is your background and what were you doing before the pandemic hit? 
Yeah. So I'm a clinical pathologist. So I did an MD PhD combined program for medical school and then a PhD in genetics. And I really came into clinical pathology at the very end of medical school. I discovered that as a field and I thought this is absolutely perfect for someone who really enjoys and likes research, but wants to be on the clinical side of science things predominantly. Sure, sure. So I came to Wash U, uh, where I met you and did my residency in clinical pathology and then did a fellowship in transfusion medicine. And that was uh, completed about five years ago. And since then, I've been the medical director of the clinical labs at Mercy Hospital in St. Louis. And our hospital is about 850 beds. Um, okay. We have an apheresis service. Um, we collect blood products here and then a pretty um, routine clinical testing lab. Wow. Uh, you have a lot of responsibilities as medical director then. Um, and I just want to let our listeners know that this isn't, uh, you know, I think a lot of residents go to, um, you know, through their residency and they think that they're going to wind up in either like this very traditional academic job or this very traditional private practice job. And you found something that I didn't even know existed until you took your job, which is more a private practice clinical pathology job. Can you just tell us a little bit about that and how you found the work you're doing now? Yeah, of course. So um, there are more of these jobs out there than you might think. I actually have um, another colleague down the street from me who does this for a different private hospital company. And then uh, I know people in other uh, locations in the state and in other nearby states that I'm friends with who do this. And really the way I found my job, and this has kind of been true for a lot of things in my life, is really reaching out and going after it. You know, there's a certain number of jobs that are listed that you see advertised different things, but I really just sent uh, cover letters with my resume to everybody in the town I wanted to work in, which is St. Louis, and just said, here's what I have to offer. And I'm looking for, you know, a private practice position. This is what I can do. Uh, would you be interested in talking more? And actually, I had uh, multiple interviews then. So I think, you know, and then I also had multiple places that I didn't hear back from. So you really just, the more swings you take, the more balls you're going to hit. I think that's great. Thanks so much for sharing that for our resident listeners. Um, yeah. And so you're located in St. Louis, Missouri, and coronavirus has also hit the Midwest. It's not just a coastal disease. Can you tell us a little bit about what it's been like in your city during the pandemic? Yeah, it's interesting. It was very abrupt. You know, we were kind of watching the news coming out of China, and we'd watch things with SARS and MERS and oh, that's bad, but it's very far away. And then sort of sighed in Washington state and thought that's a little closer to home <laughs> and that's not great. And then all of a sudden, um, Mercy Hospital St. Louis had the first case uh, in the region. Oh, and wow. Yes. So, you know, it was, and this is public knowledge, it was a, a study abroad case and just the evening before we found out about that, I had been, you know, at a theater downtown for a show with a thousand other people or 2000 other people. Oh and then goodness. just to go from that to all of a sudden sending stuff to the state lab, then being able to bring testing in house, just very quickly having to totally 
shift your focus at work and be ready to handle all this as well as obviously all the personal aspects of shifting to be safe. Of course, of course. Were you, had your hospital been able to prepare at all? Like had any preparatory measures been taken knowing that, hey, it's in the United States and it could be marching across the country to us? Yeah, actually. So we had had some really good conversations about uh, PPE and what would be safe to do on the bench tap, what would need to be done under the hood and different things. So we actually had had all these conversations before the virus was identified in our community. So we were handling things for processing under the hood from respiratory specimens. We had already switched away from doing respiratory viral cultures. Mm -hmm. So uh, we had all our safety procedures in place. So that was great. Um, As soon as we started seeing things in Washington state, we said, "Uh, we got to get ready for that. So we didn't have any lab exposure. So that was great. That's excellent. And then, yeah, the thing we weren't ready for, and you know, this is no fault of our own. This was the situation most labs found themselves in is testing, you know, on-site testing. It just, we didn't have that. Yeah, that was, that was actually my next question for you. Um, when those cases first started rolling in and you knew you needed to be testing, what was that diagnostic test and how did you get that up and running in your lab or was it something you had to send out for a while? For a while we had to send out to the state lab. And so that uh, was a bit of a rigmarole and they were only open certain hours, certain days of the week. I mean, there were times where we had to send a courier in the middle of the night and have a police officer meet them there to get it in, to put it in their freezer so it could get on a 6 a.m. run. So there was, wildness in the beginning. And then uh, thankfully, the big academic centers in town were able to get some of those molecular assays up and running pretty quickly. So we could partner with them for what we needed uh, for rapid inpatient triaging. But there still were volume issues with that. So we were sending a lot of things up to national labs that really only had it at one or two sites in the beginning. So you've got specimens going all the way to California or Virginia, and it took a few weeks before they had their Kansas City site up. So our reference lab got up to this higher volume, but outpatient testing was taking around 10 days to turn around in the beginning. Okay. Was that, was that really the biggest challenge was just turnaround time and volume that you faced kind of at the beginning of the pandemic? Yeah. And figuring out how we were going to triage, you know, because the local academic centers had partnered with us to give us some capacity on their instruments, but it wouldn't be enough to do all of our outpatients, just a handful, you know, of inpatient suspect cases each day. And so really getting all that triaged appropriately and in a timely manner as well. And it is embarrassing, but it took us like four weeks to come up with this, but we finally settled on stickers Mm-hmm. So we give the ER a sheet of stickers each day in the morning, and now we have in-house testing. So this is for what's for our in-house testing because mm-hmm. we have a limited number of that. They put the stickers on the inner bag of each specimen that they want in-house, like people who are going to be admitted, and then mm-hmm. the ones that don't have the sticker get sent out. Oh, and oh, interesting. <laughs> and you would think you'd want to be more sophisticated than that, but we tried all these things with put it in the comment, have the order different, but then they would always go over their allocation for the day. Right. And, you know, but this way 
there's just a number of stickers. The charge nurse in the ED gets the stickers and they hand them out. And actually it has cut down dramatically on the number of phone calls and everyone just knows what the allocation is. We can change it day to day as we get more supplies. So it's that's amazing. Work. Yeah. That's actually a very simple and probably cost-effective way <laughs> to get your tests yes. rooted to the correct places. Yes. Um, so now that you have in-house testing and you've been able to ramp up your amount of in-house testing, um, kind of the focus has shifted from just being able to provide these diagnostic tests for acute infection to all of this serologic testing for the presence of antibodies. Yes. So can you talk to our listeners a little bit about what's going on with these antibody tests? Um, Because it seems, I mean, if you read the lay press, it sounds like a free-for-all. And I'm just wondering how much of a free-for-all it actually is and um, how you've been navigating the system. Yeah. So in the beginning, it was a complete free-for-all. It's really interesting what the FDA does and does not take oversight of. So in the beginning of the COVID pandemic, they said for the diagnostic uh, nucleic acid-based tests, everything has to go through us. You have to get an EUA um, for emergency use authorization. And they actually put out a statement that said for serology, we're not going to oversee that. You guys just do whatever you want to do and take these things to market. So tons of different tests came to market, including very sophisticated ELISA assays that are highly sensitive and highly specific, and then really uh, questionable assays that (laughs) look maybe like a little pregnancy test, those lateral flow assays that are much less specific. So there was no onus on the manufacturers to prove anything. They could just take anything to market. And the FDA has gotten enough heat on this that actually in the last week or so, the FDA put something out that said, uh, we changed our mind. We actually (laughs) do need to see all that data and you have 10 days. So it's unclear if they're going to pull these off the market or what they're going to do with that, but they've given a definite cutoff date for when all the manufacturers have to give that information. So what I've been telling other physicians, both pathologists and non-pathologists, as well as, you know, community people, my family that I come in contact with, you know, via virtual means, Zoom, whatever, but that, you know, you really have to be careful if you're getting an antibody test that you get one of the good ones. So Quest, LabCorp, Uh, The big academic centers, Mayo, they all have very highly sensitive, highly specific tests that they've tested against people who have antibodies to the common coronaviruses, and they've looked at huge numbers. So those ones that are run on the big ELISA instruments are all very highly performing. Uh, The ones that are just point of care, are the jury's out on those, and I would hold off on that. The other thing that really needs to be taken into consideration is that all we know, even if it's a good test, all we know is that that means you were exposed to COVID. So the good tests are both sensitive and specific, uh, more sensitive than they are specific, actually. So we could say if it's positive, we know you had it. If it's negative, we don't know. It doesn't mean you didn't have it. We just don't know. So um, the interesting thing is that there, we're actually seeing people who we knew were PCR positive mm-hmm. who don't have detectable antibody at all. And we don't know what that means. The other thing people ask a lot is, does this mean 
I'm protected? Does this mean that I can't get it again? Those are questions that we're waiting for more epidemiologic information and for uh, the CDC uh, to be able to tell us more as time goes on, but we don't know that. Oh, that's interesting. Is there any thought, do we know the timeline that patients develop these IgG antibodies? Is there any thought that perhaps there's just a lag and that's why some of these patients who were PCR positive may be testing negative or we just have no idea? So generally the data that's come out of some of the academic places that have looked at huge populations and also from the blood donor data that's coming out, it looks like around 11 to 14 days, 90% of people who tested positive by PCR will develop antibodies by then. By 28 days, the people who have made it have made even more and have, you know, detectable antibodies, but there are still people who several weeks out and we know they had a PCR positive don't have detectable antibodies. Does that mean they don't have immunity? We don't know. I mean, it may be a property of the way what the test is looking at too. So there's a lot we don't know. Right. And we don't know how long these antibodies hang around, correct? Right. Right. Yeah. And some blood centers are having donors come back again and again, and they're seeing some people have titers that are still rising. Some people have titers that are leveling off. It's just really a mixed bag. So that's kind of interesting. So while you're working on bringing up antibody tests and figuring out antibody tests for your region, now states and localities are starting to relax restrictions. We were all kind of locked down for a little while and now restrictions are being relaxed. So what new challenges are you facing as a laboratory director as your hospital begins to ramp back up all of these surgeries and procedures that may have put off, been put off during the pandemic? Really just making sure that everything else, sort of the regular workings of being a lab hasn't gone by the wayside while we've shifted focus to be able to deal with all this pandemic testing. So there's all sorts of assay updates that you have to make sure are updated, you know, six month correlations, uh, reviewing procedures, all that stuff still has to keep happening. So it's uh, just making sure that we're keep doing the regular business of the lab as we continue all this pandemic management. Okay. Um, we were lucky enough to get to talk to Dr. Annan of Children's Colorado a few weeks ago about her work with convalescent plasma. And I know that you have also been instrumental in the collection of plasma for your region. Would you be able to talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, so we have our own hospital-based blood donor services where we collect 80% of the blood products that are transfused at our facility, and we were able to leverage that to start collecting convalescent plasma in early April, and uh, we were able to really very quickly ramp that up and be able to distribute that across Mercy Hospitals in the entire St. Louis region. We have at this point transfused um, about 50 patients and we've collected from about 70 patients. So we have a store now for if there is a second or third wave coming. Wow, that's uh, incredible. It, yeah, it's, it's been neat. And every single person we've asked has been really excited and willing to donate and they call back and say, when can I come back again? And then <laughs> we've even gotten phone calls from people who are still in the 
hospital. They're like, can I get wheeled down there to donate? We're like, no, no, you take care of yourself. Get better first. You know, so uh, people are really uh, eager to share that. So that's a neat, a neat Yeah, thing. that's wonderful. As people have been so willing to donate their plasma, have you seen a drop off in blood donation overall during the pandemic? So we have, uh, specifically because we do a lot of blood drives at high schools. So uh. those are all canceled, but we actually uh, have a great recruiting system and our recruiter has set up drives at other businesses and we have a whole plan in place that the AABB has set forth these guidelines for social distancing blood drives. And Interesting. we are really aggressively still calling people to come into our blood donor facility in the hospital and there's no visitors. So they're able to be very socially distant and everyone's masked. And then uh -huh. we also go out and do these drives. So we have been able to keep our supply adequate, but mm -hmm. with a lot of work. Yeah. Okay. That's so funny. When you said that, it reminded me that the very first time I donated blood was a blood drive at my high school. So yeah. those do work. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. That we get a lot of blood from high schools and other people from the community sign up when their kid's high school has a drive. And uh -huh. we've really had to work with other businesses, churches, those kind of things. But everyone's been really great to work with as far as these socially distanced blood drives. Yeah. Well, Dr. Schindler, thank you for taking time to talk with us today. Before I let you go, is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners about the world of clinical pathology or a career doing what you're doing? Yeah, so I would guess that a lot of your resident listeners are probably AP, CP pathologists uh, thinking of going into a career focused on anatomic pathology, but I would just say keep that little clinical pathology part of your brain clicking and just feel free to reach out to your friends and mentors from residency when you have clinical pathology questions when you're out there in practice. It's, I, I reach out to my friends and mentors, you know, so it's, it's always a good way to get more information and to continue learning. And most clinical pathologists are super excited if someone has a clinical pathology question <laughs> and wants to talk to them about it. So <laughs> yes, look me up. I'll answer. <laughs> well, this has certainly been a time for clinical pathology to shine. And I'm so proud of all of my clinical pathology colleagues who are out there in the trenches. Uh, while anatomic pathology volume has fallen, you guys have really been uh, the standard bearers for for pathology during this <laughs> during this pandemic. Thanks so much uh, for talking to us today and uh, appreciate your time. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much for having me. That was Dr. Emily Schindler of Mercy Hospital St. Louis. This has been another episode of PathPod News Edition. I'm your host, Dr. Meredith Pittman, and we'll be back next week with a new interview on a timely topic in the world of pathology. Support for the free PathPod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends. So go ahead, send someone the link. And be sure to subscribe to PathPod wherever you download your podcasts. PathPod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice. As always on the podcast, any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers, their affiliated institutions, affiliated professional organizations, other speakers on the program, 
their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod.